Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. And if you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. The 2020 election is just a few days away, and Valley View Friends Church will be taking some time during the Sunday morning worship service to pray for the nation and the election. In today's podcast, after the sermon is closed, I will offer that prayer for the election and encourage you to pray for the nation as well. Today's message is called Holy, and the text is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1-8. through 8. Paul speaks to the Christian, reminding us our purpose and call to holiness. In our Declaration of Independence are these words, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What wonderful rights that God, our Creator, has given all people. We Americans have spent our history living out these rights. Admittedly, admittedly, at times we have thrived in this pursuit, and other times we have struggled mightily with these rights. There is a secret to these rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They only work when you receive them from the Creator. Life is only real when it comes from Christ. Liberty is only meaningful when it comes from Christ. And the pursuit of happiness is only worthwhile when we do so in the pursuit of Christ. All of humanity is obsessed with the pursuit of happiness, but more often than not, we have left God out of the picture. And this isn't something new. In my reading, getting ready for this sermon on 1 Thessalonians, I've been reading a commentary by G.K. Beale, and he writes about uh, traveling to the city of Pergamon, the ruins of the city of Pergamon in Asia Minor. And, and it's one of those cities, one of the seven cities from the book of Revelation. And he writes about the ruins and seeing ancient Roman health spas from the time of the early church. And these Roman health spas were where people would go to become rejuvenated because of depression or some other mental uh, feeling that they were having. And they have found in the ruins the ceilings of these health spas have little holes. And what they've discovered is that these little holes on the other side would be a priestly attendant. And they, this attendant would be whispering encouraging words to help those who were laying below in the health spa to recruit, recuperate psychologically. Uh, what a strange practice, you might think. You might laugh at that a little bit, but I think we go to similar lengths today to try to find wellness and wholeness in our lives. It's the same today as it was then. If you ask someone, or if you just observe our world, you would think humanity's chief goal is to take pleasure in life. But this is misguided. 1 Thessalonians 4 reminds us that our chief goal is to please God. We would do well to remember this. The more stress and uncertainty that we face, the harder it is to remember that we're supposed to please God. And here we are, Sunday, November 1st, just a few days before a huge election, and we're deep into a year that has turned all of our lives up on end. I think we need a reminder of our purpose and where we really will find wholeness and health and peace and pleasure. So if you get nothing else from the sermon, please hear this sentence. The chief aim of every person, you and me, is to please God. And this is done by living a holy life. Let's read the text from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1-8. through 8, And I want you to listen for that pleasing God mission and to live with holiness. That, that's how it's accomplished. 
Paul writes these words, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Perhaps the sharpest words getting our attention here are when we read about disregarding the call to please God through holiness, that we're not rejecting people, we're rejecting God. And and that's quite something to say, I'm rejecting God. So Paul has officially switched gears. Up to this point in the letter, he's been recounting the friendly relationship between himself and the Thessalonians. And last week, we read about how Paul longed to return to see the Thessalonians, uh, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, to accomplish this task, to supply (coughs) what is lacking in your faith. Paul does not know how long it will be until he can come and visit them. So here in his letter, he turns to supplying this teaching that is needed. Paul writes about how the Christian is to behave and answers the question, how should believers in Christ live in the world and in relationship with one another? And this question has relevance today, perhaps all the more when you feel pressure from living in uncertainty. How do we live in the world and how do we live in relationship with one another? And Paul begins by inviting us to focus on our purpose, and that our purpose is to please God. Paul reminds the Thessalonians that this is not a new teaching, but something that he taught them when they first became Christians. First Thessalonians 4.1 tells us that Paul instructed them how you ought to walk and to please God. We are to please God. The Westminster Shorter Confession captures this so fittingly in its very first line. It says, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I think that many people struggle with the idea of pleasing God, as though this will make them miserable. But the truth is, seeking God and pleasing Him will fulfill you in ways you cannot possibly imagine. We are designed for a purpose, to have a relationship with God. And whenever we do something that is outside of our purpose, well, we're not really fully realizing who we are. We're not really in being able to enjoy ourselves for the, what we were meant to be. You can do a lot of other things, but you are at your best when you're in relationship with God. Uh, here's a simple little illustration, maybe to help you see this, because something can be designed for a purpose and do other things, but it is best when it's used for its design purpose. My mother used to sew quilts, and I remember as a child a particular rule that she had when it came to her sewing equipment. Uh, she had this very small, fine pair of metal scissors. I thought they were just the, the most fun little thing. They're just a couple of inches long, and they were great for my little hands, and, and they were very shiny and wonderful. They were very sharp. They had a little curve on the end of them. I think it was to kind of get into tight corners and places. And, and uh, the rule was there were plenty of scissors that I could use 
in the house for all kinds of projects, but not these little silver scissors. These little silver, silver scissors, I were never to use them to cut paper or cardboard for any kind of project I was working on. It, as I said, Mom supplied all kinds of other scissors that I could use. But these ones had a purpose, and she wanted them to remain clean and sharp for her projects. Could these little silver scissors cut paper? Sure they could. But the paper, if you don't know this, can dull the edge of scissors very quickly, especially if they're supposed to be sharp. If you, if you sharpen a pocket knife, one of the fastest ways to dull a pocket knife is to cut paper with it. It's the same with scissors as well. And as a little boy, uh, not only would I want to cut things, cut paper with scissors, but I would cut paper that had bits of glue and glitter and tape on them. And so the scissors I would use would always get really messy. And mom said, no, not with the little silver, silver scissors. Those are for quilting. They're not, they're not really made for cutting paper. They're too small for that. But they shined when they were used for their purpose in sewing. And there are a lot of things that we as people can do. There's a whole bunch of things that are within our ability. But we shine the most when we please God. Over and over in Scripture, we are told that pleasing God is our purpose. Colossians 1.10 says this, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That is what the Christian is to do, to be fully pleasing to Him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 22 says this, And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says this, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Our purpose is to please God. And if our purpose is to please God, then it's beneficial to ask the question, how do we please God? Now this is different from how do we have a relationship with God. That relationship was made possible by Jesus dying on the cross from us, uh, conquering the grave, rising on the third day, coming back to life and offering us eternal life in heaven, paying for our sins through the blood on the cross and offering us salvation. Once we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we must ask, what does it mean and what are we to do to please God? And the Bible gives us many answers on how to please God like bringing Jesus praise and glory, proclaiming the gospel, serving the orphan and the widow, loving your neighbor. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 focuses on holiness. We please God by being God's holy people. Holiness is not always a welcome word in our world. For some people, it represents someone who thinks they are better than others. That they've conquered sin and now they're holy in all their actions. There's a humility that should come with holiness. Not a better than thou, but a humility. There's a quote from D.L. Moody that I like. It says this, A holy life will make the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns, they just shine. I think there are a lot of people that when they think that they've got it figured out, they try to toot their own horn. Holiness should just be a shining in our obedience to the Lord. For others, when they think of that word holy, they just think holy is the equivalent to boring. Where's the fun in following all the rules? And this isn't a new thought. St. Augustine, one of our most important church leaders uh, who lived between the year 354 
AD and 430 AD, lived 75 years, he, he helped shape so much of the critical theology that we have today as Christians. One prayer that he prayed early in his Christian walk is one that might make you laugh, but I think it echoes that idea of holiness we sometimes think of as boring or something we don't want. His prayer was this, God, make me good, but not yet. Fortunately, God got a hold of him and did bring about holiness in his life. Perhaps sometimes you've been thinking in a similar way. You might say, I'll be good, but, but not yet. Holiness is not always a welcome word, but it's what we're called to do. So what does it mean to be holy? One writer puts it this way, to be holy is to have character that is in keeping with God's own character. And that's a good start. But there's more to it. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1-8, through 8, with the text we read today, he writes quite a bit about the need to be holy. In verse 3, we are told that God's will is our sanctification. The word we read as sanctification is the same word that is used for holy when you read verse 4, control his own body in holiness and honor. And it's also the same word we read in verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And it's the same word used in the Holy Spirit's name. The Greek word there is hagios. And this word is a good starting point for understanding what it means to be holy. It means to avoid the profane. But even more than that, the word hagios means to be set apart, to dedicate for a specific purpose. And the Hebrew word that is equivalent to hagios is kadosh. And it has the same meaning, to be set apart, to be set apart, to dedicate. And this is an interesting uh, word to think about and way to think about the word holy. And you can start to hear this meaning when you read about holiness in the Bible, to be set apart. If you go to the book of Genesis, after God creates everything and he takes a day to rest, we read this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. It says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in the creation. God takes the seventh day and he makes it different from the other six. The other six he worked hard creating. Seventh day, it's different. It's dedicated. It's set apart. It's holy. We seem to get in the most trouble with Sabbath observance when our Sabbath day looks like every other day of the week. It's to be set apart, holy, from the rest. Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, when Moses goes up to the burning bush on the mountainside, we read these words. It says this, And then he said, meaning God, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Moses may have wanted to see what was happening at the burning bush, but he couldn't walk right up to it like everywhere else. This place was different. It was dedicated for a purpose. It was holy ground. He had to change his behavior to approach the bush. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, we're told these words, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. So read in that set-apart different dedicated, and you, the text continues, are that temple. We, we tend to think that we are our own temple, that we're to please ourselves, but we are God's temple. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says this, But as he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am 
holy. We're to be set apart, dedicated for God. Holiness certainly includes avoiding that which is sinful. And Paul writes about talking about, writes about this being separate what is from what is sinful, uh, avoiding what is sinful by talking about sexual morality. But holiness is not just about removing sin, but being designated for God. You need to hear today that living a holy life is not just about avoiding something. It's about being set apart for God. That you can stand and declare that all you are and all your thoughts, your dreams and ambitions are now dedicated to God. See, holiness should give us hope that we draw nearer to God, not just getting junk out of our lives. I mean, sometimes I think we approach holiness with, oh, I got to face all my bad stuff and deal with it and, and just conquer it. And, and I got to look at all the things I'm ashamed of. And yes, it is a part of holiness to, uh, to abstain from sin, to, to live a life uh, that follows God's commands, which means we got to give up stuff that is uh, against his commands. But the hope part of it is, is that holiness means we are drawing nearer to God. I'd encourage you not to lose sight of the mission. Paul speaks of that mission as living to please God with holiness, and he makes this concrete by using the example of sexual immorality. And there's something I want to point out to you about this sexual immorality that Paul writes about. He expects non-Christians to behave this way. I mean, look at it. Paul is writing saying, we expect the Gentiles to do this. This is how they think. But Paul knows there is to be a distinction between the behavior of the Christian and the non-Christian. The immorality is a problem for anyone and everyone, but Paul expects the Christian to be set apart to be holy. It's important for us to understand, outside of the Jewish and Christian communities, the word sexual immorality had no meaning. Never would these two words be put together. The ancient world had no concept of sexual immorality. It was like a fish swimming in water, and it doesn't know that it's in water. The culture had no concept that such a behavior and living was destructive and sinful. A Greek philosopher, a very famous Greek philosopher, Demosthenes, said this and was well known for saying this. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children. Sexual immorality had no meaning to the non-Christian culture in Paul's day. The pagan world simply did not think of sexual promiscuity or indulgence as wrongdoing. It was like breathing air. It was like going to school. It was like working for your pay. Thus, sexual immorality was not immoral to them. So to be holy, to be set apart... A clear example was to remove oneself from the casual sexual practices of the community. But remember, the desire to pursue our own happiness is strong. I know people are often tempted to match the culture. And when this happens, sin, that doesn't even look like sin, seeps into our lives. Because it's so common in culture, we have an inability to recognize it. Because it comes camouflaged by being ordinary. Everybody does this. It makes me feel so good. It's a camouflage sin, just like the sexual immorality that Paul was writing about to the Thessalonians. Watch out for sin that is so common in our society that we don't even recognize its danger. Just to give you a couple examples to think about, we might find in the practices and places like this sinfulness that we don't even realize is sinful, like the idea of being busy 
Everybody is so busy all the time that we fail to see that we no longer really give time to God. We give it to many good endeavors, but not to God. Have you let busyness, because everybody's busy. You greet someone on the street, how are you doing? And they'll eventually say, I've been really busy. It's so common in our culture that we don't even see the sinfulness that can be in the busyness. Social media is another place that I think sin can hide. I'm not saying social media itself is sinful, but when we measure our worth by likes and shares, that's a problem. When we shame, chastise, judge, or block people on a screen in a way that we never would if we saw them face to face, that's a problem. Sin can hide in places that are so common that we have trouble recognizing it. And perhaps the emotions and the divisiveness we feel about the election fits into the category of this rampant that's so rampant in our culture we cannot see the sinfulness in our political behaviors. It would be worthwhile to pray and ask God what in your life has become so common and ordinary that you may not see it as sinful in God's eyes. This entanglement with sin distracts us from our purpose of pleasing God by living a holy life, so be aware. Resolve no matter what, that no matter what life throws at you, you will seek to please God by being His holy people. Come November 4th, whether we know or not know who holds office, or whether we know or not know or agree with them, if you're a Christian, your goal is still to please God as His holy people. Do not let this week, this year, or anything else you face change that. Live to please God, and living to please God will go a long way to bringing healing to our community. Proverbs 6-7 says this, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Heavenly Father, help us never to forget our purpose. No matter where we find ourselves in life, remind us that our purpose is to please you. Lord, help us to take holiness seriously, not as a way to feel better about ourselves, not as a way of showing others our, their own struggle with sin, but that we would realize that if we follow Jesus, we are to be set apart for you dedicated for you. Lord, in my own life, show me if there be anything that I have not given to you completely, where sin may hide secretly because it's become so common to me. Lord, show it to me and help me to give it over to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, if you've listened to the sermon this long, and I hope you have, I want to take a few minutes now and offer the words that I'm going to share with the congregation on Sunday morning about praying for our nation. As I've said already in the sermon, we're just a few days away from the election. The tension in the air is thick enough to cut. Something is consuming us, whether you want to call it concern, anxiousness, or fear, or, or whatever. It's concern about what the other side will do, or do to you. If you're a Democrat... You might be scared of what four more years of Trump will do to your rights and the forward progress of society. If you're a Republican, you might be scared about what a Biden presidency will bring. If you're an independent, you might be, uh, well, you find yourself stuck in the unfortunate position of being at the mercy of the political dogfight we're in. I mention all these sides, and I hesitate to do so, because I realize we all have our opinions, and we all freely choose to elect the person we see who is most fit to be in office. I'm not trying to say one or the other is better, but I mention these sides because I see now very clearly that everyone is concerned. Everyone is afraid of what the other side might, will, might do. 
Everybody thinks they're right, but each one is also fearful of what might happen if the other side wins. I encourage you to vote for those who will defend the church. But please remember that whichever candidate you vote for, there are those who are worried and fearful of what will happen if that candidate wins. 1 John 4.18 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I know a lot of us are thinking about what will happen or what might happen after the election, but in this I would encourage you not to wait. As Christians, we need to be a people who proclaim truth, who promote peace, who care for the least among us, and to seek to make disciples of all nations, and at this time, to also dispel fear. In a moment, I'm going to ask each of you to take some time and pray for our nation. And I want to share a few words from Franklin Graham about how to pray for our nation. These words he penned earlier this year after the death of George Floyd and all the protests and the riots that followed. Now, facing an election and renewed violence, these words can help give us some focus in our prayers. And he writes this, We need to pray for peace because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, from James 1.20. Pray for perspective, because the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, from James 3.17. Pray for patience, because of God's kindness and forbearance and patience toward us all, from Romans 2.4. And pray for an outpouring of his wisdom and direction for our leaders and officials who are dealing with this crisis. Ask God to change hearts and heal this divide in our nation. I think those words are wise. That In these days we pray for peace, perspective, patience, and an outpouring of God's wisdom. I'd encourage you to take some time and pray that. But now I'd like to offer this prayer. Lord, today... I ask that you cast out, cast out fear with love, that you would fill this nation with wisdom instead of anger and division. Make us a patient people again, that we would listen to our neighbors and hear their cries, their joys, and their dreams. Lord, we look to our nation's leaders for solutions, justice, and an end to discord. Empower them to lead our nation in a godly way. And Lord, let the healing of this nation start with me. Almighty God, to whom we must account for all of our powers and privileges, guide and direct, humbly we pray, the minds of all those who are called to elect fit persons to serve in the office of the President, the Senate, the House of Representatives, and there are so many offices at the local level, Lord. Grant, then, the exercise of our choice that we may promote your glory and the welfare of this nation. This we ask for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Go with Jesus.